0: And the scripture reading for this morning is Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were, there, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I had called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they went out by the Holy Spirit, and they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole land of, as far as Paphos. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at them and said, You are son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, I love you for being a God who speaks. I love you for being a God who makes yourself known through your words. I thank you for being a God who makes your will clear. I thank you for being a God who tells us stories so that not only we will know the story, but so that we'll understand what it is that you want to do in our lives. And so I wanna pray before I preach, Father, that you would use the stories of your word, that you would use the power of the Holy Spirit, not only to inform us about what you did back then, although that will have its own joy as well, but I pray, Father, that you would use your word to shape a certain way of life in this church, I pray that that way of life would be magnifying to Jesus and pleasing to our Father and encouraging, if I can put it that way, to the Holy Spirit. That you, Holy Spirit, would feel drawn to us and desirous to put your power upon us. Lord, help us, in other words, not only to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Father, I pray this with such joy in my heart because you made a promise in Isaiah chapter 55. You said that when my word goes out, it never comes back void. It always produces the purposes for which I send it. And so I thank you, Father, because I know that you'll use your word today to shape the life of this church. And it is in, therefore, the mighty name of Jesus that I give you my thanks and praise. Amen. Amen. As you likely know by now, probably knew before this sermon series, the thesis statement of the book of Acts is found in chapter 1, verse 8. That's where Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then after that, the order is extremely important. You will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. And then after that, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus began to keep this promise. He is a God who makes promises. He is a God who keeps his promises. That is the hope of our lives, beloved. We serve a God who keeps his promises. So from Acts chapter two forward and to our very day, he's been keeping his promise. He put his spirit upon his people. Peter rose up to preach and he preached with power. 3,000 men plus believing women and children came to faith in Christ that day and they formed the church. The church was born that day and the church continued to pray and seek the Holy Spirit and ask for power, not to put on public shows, but to proclaim the beauty, the glory, the truth of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit granted their request because it was in the heart of Jesus to do so. Jesus was fulfilling his promise to his church by putting his spirit upon his church in one situation after another. And they continued to preach and people continued to come to Christ. Christ was keeping his promises. Last week, we watched as Jesus continued to fulfill his promises by leading Peter to go up to a town called Caesarea and preach the gospel for the first time to Gentile people. Up to this point, up to Acts chapter 10, the gospel had only been preached to Jews and those who had converted to Judaism. But now in Acts chapter 10, God by way of a vision and really by way of a miracle sent Peter to go up the north coast of Israel and and boldly proclaim the gospel to Gentile people and many of those Gentiles came to faith in Christ. This movement of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles was enraging to the Jews It was very offensive to them. In fact, the church itself found it hard to accept this. And so you'll remember that they called Peter back to Jerusalem and made him explain what was going on. But having heard what was going on, they rejoiced in the work of God because this was indeed a work of God. The gospel was spreading from the Jewish people to the nations and there was nothing anybody could do to stop it because this was the prophesied work of God. And this work was not only contained to the ministry of Peter, but there were also some other brothers who were preaching Christ up the north coast of Israel. We don't even know their names, which I personally, I thank God for hiding from us their names. That We don't need to know who they were. This was mainly the ministry of Jesus Christ pulsing through his church. And while they were preaching the gospel to the Jews, Gentiles actually came to them and said, please tell us about Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing to you if you went to some city to preach the gospel and a whole crowd of folks just walked up to you and said, please tell us about Jesus. But well, that's what happened here. And as the, these brothers preached the gospels, more, more and more Gentiles came to Christ. And one city in particular, a bunch of Gentiles came to Christ. And that was the city of Antioch, north, directly north of, of Jerusalem the church of Jerusalem was concerned about what was going on in that city. So they sent Barnabas up there to find out what was going on. And Barnabas went to that city and tested the brothers there and he was very encouraged by what he saw. He praised God for what he saw. He commended the brothers for what he saw. And also, in a certain way, he was concerned about what he saw because so many Gentiles came to Christ that they needed people to disciple them. It's a blessing when two, three, four thousand people come to Jesus, but it's also a problem, isn't it? All of a sudden now, you've got to grow these people up, and what was he to do? So Barnabas prayed about it and decided to go up to the city of Tarsus, uh, about a 7,500-mile journey. He went up to Tarsus, and he just walks around the city, and finally he finds Saul and persuades Saul to come back to the city of Antioch. And there they spent over a year discipling the brothers and sisters in that city. They essentially spent a year being the pastors of the church of Antioch, and God was doing amazing things. Beloved, I hope that you see what's happening here. Jesus is keeping his promise. Jesus saw to it that his name was proclaimed in Jerusalem. Jesus saw to it that his name was proclaimed in Judea, which is to the west and north of Jerusalem. Jesus saw to it that his name was proclaimed in Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, and up in Galilee, which is farther north still, and beyond Samaria, and beyond Galilee. And now, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we're going to see that Jesus is faithful to see that his name is proclaimed far beyond Samaria, far beyond Galilee. Today, we're going to witness the first missionary trip of the, in the history of the church, Acts chapters 13 and 14 are often thought of as Paul's first missionary journey, but I want us to see this was the church's first missionary journey. This is the first time the church took brothers and sent them out to foreign lands to proclaim Jesus to Jews and Gentiles alike. And oh, what a privilege it will be for us to recount this history, to remember what God has done, and then to think about how that might affect our lives here today as well. So look at chapter 13 and in verse one. Please, I, I just want you to quickly notice that Luke writes of the church of Antioch. He writes about the church of Antioch. That's very important, very important. When people come to faith in Christ, they don't simply come to have a personal relationship with Jesus. They become a part of the church. They become attached to everybody else who believes in Christ. They become part and parcel of the body of believers that Christ himself has brought together true Christians can exist outside the church either because there are no other believers in their area or because they're ignorant of what it is that God is really trying to do or sometimes because they're in sin and rebellion against God. And in his grace, he can still let them be saved, even though they're outside of his will. But I want us to understand clearly that this disconnection of some people does not imply that this is uh, okay with Jesus or that it has his blessing. From the point of view of Christ, to be in Christ is to be the church. And so Luke did not write about believers in the city of Antioch. He wrote about the church in Antioch. Christ is trying to reconcile us to himself and then reconcile us to one another. This is his work. To be in Christ is to be the church. And oh, how I pray that God will teach us this lesson, profoundly important lesson. In the church of Antioch, there were leaders there. The organization was not loosey-goosey. There were people who were in charge. There were people who were following. Particularly, Luke says that there were prophets and teachers there. These were men who knew the word of God deeply, who had a vibrant relationship with the God of the word, and who knew how to preach and teach in such a way that the church was edified. Luke names five of them in particular. There was Barnabas. There was a man named Simeon, not Simon Peter. This is another person. There's a man named Lucius. There's a man named Mannion, who happened to be a lifelong friend of King Herod, by the way, who had recently died. And then there was Saul. There were five in all. Five teachers, five prophets, five preachers, five people who were leading the church in Antioch. These brothers, Luke tells us, had gathered for a time of worshiping the Lord and fasting. And if we can slow down here for a second, that that Luke mentions fasting implies to me that this time of worship went on for a while. If you think about it, in order to fast, you have to skip at least one meal, right? Right? So in order to gather and fast, this had to last at least for a number of hours. It might have lasted for a whole day. It might have lasted for days. They gathered to worship and fast. They gathered not for a quick couple of prayers, but they gathered to spend a substantial amount of time in prayer together. And while they were there praying, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. In my mind's eye, Luke doesn't give us details, but in my mind's eye, I think that the way this happened is that while they were worshiping, while they're fasting, while they're praying out loud, while they're sharing things from their heart, the Holy Spirit puts something into one of the brother's hearts and he speaks it out loud. The Holy Spirit spoke to the church, probably through one of the prophets, one of the teachers, as their heart felt impressed about what the Holy Spirit said. And here's exactly what was said. The Holy Spirit said, not the man, but the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. After this word was initially received and shared, you'll notice that it says they continued to worship and fast and pray. And again, because the word fasting is added for a second time, I assume that some time passed here. You can't fast for 30 minutes, right? You can go have breakfast this morning and say, hey, I'm gonna fast until 10 o'clock. But that's not really fasting to fast, you have to skip at least one meal. So time is passing here, beloved. It's only three verses, but you have to slow down, get inside the story. Time is passing here. The Holy Spirit speaks a word and they continue to fast and pray hour upon hour. And I imagine in that time, they're seeking the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. They're testing the word that came through one of the prophets. They're asking him, please give us more information. Give us more details. Lord, we need to know more about this work that you set them apart for. We need to understand more about the part that you would have for us to play. We need to understand where will the resources come from? Where, what are all the details? They're seeking the Spirit, beloved. They're not just conferring with one another. They're seeking the Spirit. Lord, what exactly would you have us to do? And I believe that they're praying their blessing over Barnabas and Saul, and they're praying for all of the details as they become clearer and clearer. And evidently, the details did become clearer because in due time, uh, Luke writes that they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. To send them off somewhere implies that they knew where they were sending them to, Right? So somehow or other, the Spirit was clear. I want you to send them to a particular place. In a season of worship and fasting and prayer, the Holy Spirit spoke to his church. The Holy Spirit, in a very specific way, guided his church, and so they laid hands and they sent. Now, before we continue in the story, I want to pause here and address the question of why we lay hands on people. Why do we lay hands on those whom we send? Well, there's probably more to be said than this, but just quickly, I wanna give two answers to that question. First of all, we lay hands on those we send because it's a visible demonstration of our spiritual and relational unity in Jesus Christ. We lay hands on people because it is a visible demonstration of our spiritual and relational unity in Jesus Christ impersonal organizations send people in impersonal ways. Isn't that right? If a corporation wants to send one of their people overseas, they don't lay hands on them, right? I've never seen that happen. They might send them an email. They might send them a text. They're just saying, here's an assignment, here's your job, go get it done. It's an impersonal organization they send in impersonal ways. The church is not like that. The church is a profoundly relational organization. The church, in fact, is a family. Think about this. God commands us, God invites us, God allows us to call him our father, not just my father, our father. And then throughout the Bible, how are we relating to each other? We're, we're calling each other brothers and sisters. This is family language. This is not corporate language. This is personal language, not impersonal language. And so personal, relational organisms like the church send in relational ways. We touch those we send because we love those that we send. Something about the the touch of laying on of hands is, is, is proclaiming the love that actually sends us. Second thing, we lay hands on those we send because it's a means of conferring blessing and authority. I believe even this morning as we laid our hands upon the new worship team, I believe that some kind of real transaction transpired right in front of our eyes. I believe that the Holy Spirit conferred authority upon the Doss family and the Veek family to lead us in worship. Something happened there. Ultimately, the authority is coming from the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the calling is coming from the Holy Spirit. But he uses his church to confer his blessings. He uses his church to confer the authority. He is binding us together in deeper and deeper relational levels just by the way he does what he does. I hope you can see that he has all the authority and wisdom and power in the world that he needs. And if he wanted to give authority, he could just snap his fingers and it would be conferred. But he has chosen to confer authority through the the means of the church because he sees us as a family. This is ultimately a relational transaction that is happening. And so the church of Antioch gathered to fast and pray. They're authentically seeking God. Please, God, please give us clarity about your will. Give us power to do your will. Father, please teach us to love you. Teach us to exalt you. Teach us to live our lives for you. And while they're singing, singing to him, worshiping him, seeking him, praying to him, he speaks and said, set Barnabas and Saul aside for me and send them to a very particular place. And praise be to God, the church obeyed the Lord. They laid hands and sent. Now look at verse four. The very first thing that Luke says then is so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Please, especially those of you who are involved directly in missions, or maybe you're an avid supporter of missions, please pay careful attention to that. It just said in verse three that the church sent them out, right? Now in verse four, it says that the Holy Spirit sent them out. This is really important. This balance gives us a philosophy of sending that I think is extremely important. On the one hand, to focus on the Spirit, It is extremely important for the church to understand that the ultimate authority for sending comes from the Spirit himself. Ultimately, the work of missions is not the work of the church. Ultimately, the work of missions is the work of the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, he works through the church. So the authority belongs to him. The calling belongs to him. The power belongs to him. But then he uses the church as a means to send. They sent them and the Holy Spirit sent them, both things. To focus on the Holy Spirit's role keeps the church from becoming arrogant and power-hungry and all of those kinds of things, flesh-driven, powerless. To focus on the church's role keeps us from from the world being plagued with maverick missionaries who could care less about authority, accountability, and all these kinds of things. There are people all over this world today who have been told, no, you probably shouldn't go into missions and they just decided to go and do whatever they wanted to do because they did not believe that the Holy Spirit uses the authorities of the church, but he does. So this balance protects us on two sides. To focus on the Holy Spirit helps us to put our eyes in the right place and to have the right prize. He is the leader of the Global Missions Movement. This is all about him exalting Jesus Christ all over this world. It's his work, it's not our work. We're simply servants of his. Oh, what joy is there. And at the same time, we submit ourselves to the church. We submit ourselves to the processes of the church because the Spirit himself uses the church in order to send. Those of you who are directly involved in missions or avid supporters, please meditate carefully on chapter thirteen one to 4 Spend time there because I think it gives us an appropriate philosophy of sending, an appropriate starting place for missions. Now, the very first place to which a missionary was ever sent in the history of the church was the island of Cyprus, which was off the coast of northern Israel. There, Barnabas and Saul proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and there was this young man with him. His name was John, also called Mark. Mark. They actually preached their way from the east coast of Cyprus all the way across to the west coast. It was about a 100 mile journey. And they didn't just journey, they preached their way across the island. And eventually, they came to the far western side and to a city called Paphos. There, they met a magician a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. He wasn't named after Jesus of Nazareth. The name Jesus was Yeshua in the in the Hebrew language, and it means Joshua. So Bar-Jesus means the son of Joshua. Whatever his name means, he was a false prophet. But he also happened to be friends with the leader of the city of Paphos, a guy named Sergius Paulus. He knew him. And Sergius was curious about Paul and Barnabas, and, or Saul and Barnabas at this point, and asked if they would come and and speak to him. Again, you have a leader of a major city saying, please come, tell me about Jesus. This would be really good news for a missionary, right? You lay down everything. You go to a land that you don't know, and the leader of one of the cities says, please come and preach Jesus to me. So Paul, he's now at this point, turns from being called Saul to being called Paul, which I'm really grateful for because I get confused about publicly calling him Saul, Saul, Saul. I can now just call him Paul. At this point in the story, We begin to call him Paul. Paul rises up. He preaches to Sergius. And while he's preaching, this false prophet also raises up and begins to oppose him. They're battling over the soul of Sergius Paulus. And while this battle is happening, the Holy Spirit grips the spirit of the Apostle Paul. This was not a movement of his flesh. This was a movement of the spirit. As he's preaching and and this magician is opposing, Paul, gripped by the Spirit, looked intently at Bar Jesus and he rebuked him very strongly and he said these things. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, full of villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Beloved, I want to reiterate to you that Paul did not say this out of fleshly impatience or self-centeredness. He was being moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a pattern of worship and prayer in Paul's life and so in the heat of a particular moment, he had sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and he could hear him speak and the Spirit commanded him to rebuke this man and we know that it was the power of the Spirit working because of what happened. Two things happened. On the one hand, the magician was indeed struck with blindness immediately. Said so something like a mist came over him and he went blind and had to be led about by the hand. Sometimes the signs and wonders done by the apostles are signs of rebuke, not signs of healing. And that's what happened here. The other thing that happened was this this major leader, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, watched what happened. He was so impressed by what he heard and what he saw that he actually came to faith in Jesus Christ. The leader of the city of Paphos came to faith in Christ because he heard the gospel clearly and he saw a demonstration of the gospel's power. It may be that other people were converted as Paul and Barnabas preached their way across Cyprus, but Sergius Paulus is the first reported Believer in Christ in the first missionary journey in the history of the church, and we ought to give thanks and praise to God for him now, after these things, Paul and Barnabas set sail from Cyprus and they traveled up to the mainland of Europe. They went to the basically the center of the south of modern day Turkey, and they docked in a city called Persia. I put that map up here for you. I hope that helps. You can see Persia right there in the middle. Of the map. So they sailed from the west coast of Cyprus and now they went up to Persia there. As was their custom, they began by visiting the local synagogue. And after the daily readings had been read, the leader of the synagogue, which was basically like a local pastor, called out to them and said and asked them, Do you have any word of exhortation? I'm just realizing though that I got ahead of myself. When I turned to the map, I got distracted. When they went to Perga, they actually then traveled up to Antioch. You can see it up there in the middle of the map. And I want you to notice that there are two Antiochs. It's important that we not confuse them. This one over here on the right is called Syrian Antioch because it was in Syria. And the one right up there in the middle is called Pisidian Antioch because it was in a region called Pisidia. So after they sailed up to Perga, they actually made a 100-mile journey up to Antioch. And when they got there, it was there that on the Sabbath they they went into the synagogue and began to, to, to just worship and to be part of the service there. The readings for the week were read. And the, the, basically, the local pastors of the synagogue said to them, do you have any word of encouragement for us? Do you have anything that you would like to say? Which, again, is just a tremendous answer to prayer. The, you, these brothers went out in total faith that God would give them everything they needed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and, and to see people come to Jesus. And here, the leader of the synagogue just opens the door open wide and says, hey, anything you want to talk to us about? Answer, yes. <laughs> I've got something on my heart. So I've thought a lot about how to handle Paul's sermon here in chapter 13, and I've just decided I'm just going to read it for us. I want us to hear this sermon. Hear the word of God being proclaimed almost 2,000 years ago. Here is a gospel-laden sermon that had power in their day. Paul says in verse 13, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Listen. You have to understand, for any Hebrew person, that word listen would stick out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Listen, 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 wake up, pay attention, hear the word of God. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them up, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Isn't that amazing? Two brief paragraphs he went from Israel, Egypt, to Jesus, just like that. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the promised deliverer of Israel. But no, behold, after me, there is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. I can't even touch this man's shoes. He is so much greater than me. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled the utterances of the prophets by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down and from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, we know it was 40 days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Their witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Galilee, in Samaria, and now far beyond these lands. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us and our children by raising Jesus. Also, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, which comes from Isaiah 55, by the way. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, his body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. His body never decayed. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses or, frankly, any other law. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. This word had tremendous power in the life of the synagogue. Some people wanted to hear Paul again, so they asked him, please come back the next Saturday. Come back next, next Sabbath day. And some of these people were so curious about what he was preaching and teaching that they actually followed him all week long and they listened to what he had to say. They followed up with these things. Surely they debated, surely they listened, surely they learned. And on the next Sabbath day, almost the entire city shows up to the synagogue, Jews and Gentiles alike. Just about everybody was there. And Paul's gonna get this tremendous privilege to preach the gospel again. But now the Jews see the big crowds and they get jealous of what's happening here. They want the crowds to follow them. They're thinking of themselves, they're thinking of their own blessings, they're thinking of their own money, they're thinking of their own fame, they're not thinking of the things of God, and so they become very jealous, and what they do is instead of listening to the Word of God, they begin to stir up a lot of trouble against Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas moved again by the Spirit, not by their flesh, but by the Spirit say they say to the Jews, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken to you first, And by the way, I'll tell you, I still think that's true to this day. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I'm going to quote your own scripture to you to show you that this gospel should be preached to the Gentiles. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced greatly because they wanted to receive the word of God. And Luke boldly says that whoever was appointed to eternal life believed. Oh, what a powerful sentence. What a strong sentence. What a guiding sentence, an informative sentence. These people passed from eternal death into eternal life, not because they were persuaded by Paul's sermon, although his sermon was persuasive but it was because the Holy Spirit had already appointed them to eternal life. And so Paul and Barnabas had no problem preaching to crowds and say, listen, all of you hear the gospel, all of you respond, all of you believe. But they were able to relax inside the joy that those who would come would come because the Holy Spirit had already appointed them. Ultimately, Paul and Barnabas were not on a sales journey. They were not trying to make converts. They're just preaching the gospel. Witnesses just witness, right? Witnesses aren't responsible for the outcome of their witness. They just witness. Paul and Barnabas witness it was the Holy Spirit who did the mighty work, and many people came to Christ in that city. After this, though, the Jewish leaders stirred up serious dissension against Barnabas and Saul and actually drove them out of that area, and so they shook the the dust off of their feet and they went and preached Christ in the city of Iconium, which was about 70 or 80 miles away, and you can see that up on the map as well. In Iconium, they preached the gospel in the synagogues just as they had done. They did it in the streets just as they had done. And the Bible says that a good number of Jews and Greeks came to faith in Christ. But again, after some time, the leaders rose up and began to cause trouble for them and now even threatened to stone them to death. And so rather than be subject to stoning, they fled from that city and went down about 20 miles south to the city of Lystra. What happened in that city was truly amazing. And I wish we had more time to really press into the details, but we don't. So let me just summarize it for you and say that when they arrived in the city, they saw a man there who was lame in his feet and he had been lame from birth. Like, like the guy at the temple in Acts chapter three and four there, He he had never walked one single day in his life. And Paul, when he looked intently at him and saw that this man had faith inside of him to be healed, moved along by the Holy Spirit, commanded that he stand up and walk. And by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of Paul, but by the power of the Spirit, that man did, in fact, stand up and walked. And this healing touched the people so greatly that many of them came to faith in Christ. In fact, the people were convinced that Paul and Barnabas were gods. And they they brought the the leader of the synagogue or the, the temple of Zeus over with sacrifices and they were gonna begin making sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. I wonder what you would do if you were on some mission field somewhere and you preached Christ with great effect and now the people wanted to offer you the sacrifices of a god. Well, Paul and Barnabas did everything they could to plead with these people and say, no, 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 we are just men. Do not do this. They did everything they could to point these people to Christ. And Luke just said, even with so many pleadings, they almost didn't succeed in keeping them from offering the offerings to them. You'd think that the story would keep going in a good direction from there. But as the enemies of the gospel are wont to do, people from Pisidian Antioch and people from Iconium traveled all the way to Lystra just to stir up trouble for Paul and Barnabas. And they actually persuaded the city against Paul and Barnabas so that these people who were worshiping them just the day before now picked up rocks and began throwing them at Paul in particular to the point where they actually thought he died. They grabbed Paul by the arms, dragged him out of the city and threw him down on the ground and left him for dead. They thought they had succeeded this... This so-called God that they had just been worshiping, they now tried to kill, but praise be to God, Paul actually didn't die. And the church nurtured him back to health that particular day, and it, what amazes me is once they realized he wasn't dead, they brought him right back into the same city. They brought him into Lystra again. The very next day, all filled with bumps and bruises, scrapes, scratches, blood probably still. They make another journey. I mean, I could just imagine Paul with a big fat lip and stuff going, we've got to keep preaching the gospel. We've got to move on. We've got to move on. We can't stop. God has called us. So they travel from there to a city called Derby, which was quite a a journey, 60, 70-mile journey. And when they got there, they preached the gospel again, warts, wounds, and all. This broken, physically broken man preaching the gospel with great power, and people are coming to Christ. And then believe it or not, after they spent time in the city of Derby, which you can see almost near the coast over there, after they were done there, they actually, moved by the Holy Spirit, traveled back And they went back to Lystra, the city where people just tried to kill him. And they went back to Iconium. They went back to Antioch, to all these people who had done violence against them. And it said they went there to strengthen the brothers and encourage the disciples and to tell them that this kind of abuse was just part and parcel of what it meant to serve the great king and to serve in the kingdom of God. By many trials, by many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Beloved, believers, don't think that something unusual has happened to me, Paul, because I have suffered for Christ. In fact, my suffering was destined by Christ. We preach the gospel, not specifically so that we can suffer, but we preach the gospel and we are willing to suffer. And in this way, he went back to these very cities at the risk of his life and strengthened the church. And the other thing it said that they did in city by city is they appointed elders, plural. They appointed pastors in every single church and when they had done that, they fasted, they prayed, which again took time, and they committed these brothers to the Lord in whom they had believed. I, As I've reflected on this part of the story, I am just left to wonder what kind of grace and love and perseverance is it that drives a man and his team to go into a city to suffer so greatly to leave that city, but then to deliberately go back into that city to preach the same gospel to those people at the risk of their lives. What kind of love is that? And I would just suggest to you that it's the kind of love of a savior, Jesus Christ, who is keeping his promise to the church. This was not about the courage of Paul, the courage of Barnabas. This was about the Lord Jesus Christ working in his people by the power of the Holy Spirit and leading them. Okay, Paul and Barnabas, now it's time to go back to Lystra. They're not making a fleshly decision. They're seeking God. They had a pattern in their lives, a prayer, of worship, of fasting. They were a praying people. And as they prayed, the Lord said, okay, go back. Now go back to Iconium. Now go back to Antioch. Do my work. Do my will. This is not the story of bravery. This is the story of Jesus Christ keeping his promise to his church, even if through suffering. And I think it's incredibly beautiful. When they had finished their work of strengthening the church, they now sailed back. They got in. They went back down to the south coast and they sailed back to Syria and Antioch there on the north side of Israel. And there they reported to the church everything that God had done and everybody rejoiced greatly. I'm sure that that was an amazing time of worship and prayer. They had been sent out from this pr- precious church and now they went back to this precious church and celebrated with the brothers and sisters there all that God had done. And with this comes to end the first missionary journey in the history of the church. What a privilege it is for us to have this preserved in our Bible. What a privilege it is for us to get to reflect on this, to think about what the Spirit has done, and not just what he did then, but what he might do now. So let me just take a couple more minutes and talk about that. What do these stories have to teach us about our life in Christ here at GCF? And I see a couple things. First of all, let me say this. The Holy Spirit still chooses and sends some to preach Christ to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit still chooses and sends some to preach Christ to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is still the one leading the global missions movement. The Holy Spirit is, if you will, the chief operations officer of the kingdom of God while Jesus and the Father are the tandem CEOs, if you will. Jesus is still conducting his ministry through the church and he's doing that by the presence of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit on the life of the church. For those of you who have been directly involved in missions or avid supporters of missions, you know that global missions involves many, many details. But let us not miss the point. Let us make no mistake about this. The Holy Spirit is still the one leading the charge. This is his work. The Holy Spirit is still the one that's choosing some to go. The Holy Spirit is still the one who is sending some to go. He is still the one who is resourcing. He is still empowering. He is still leading us to exalt the name of Jesus Christ in one town and village after another, even if we have to suffer. The Holy Spirit still chooses and sends some to preach Christ to the ends of the earth. This is his work, beloved. And I pray that we would see that. I pray that we would rejoice in that. I pray that we would relax in that. For those of you who spend a lot of time praying for missions and missionaries, I not you probably have experienced what I've experienced. Is sometimes you just feel this burden, like the, the work is just so massive, it's so serious, it feels overwhelming to pray about. It's like I could spend 24 hours a day just praying for one situation after another and it wouldn't be enough. It feels so heavy. But let us rejoice that the weight of the global missions movement is on the shoulders of the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is his work, beloved. He is doing it still to this day. Oh, how I pray that that lesson will drive deep, deep, deep into our hearts. I believe that the more we see his role, the more we will be freed up to play our role, which leads me to the second point. I believe that still the Holy Spirit sends, chooses and sends when the church gathers to worship and to pray the issue of getting a clear call in our lives, the issue of being sent in our lives is not merely a personal decision that happens in the prayer closet. It's a communal thing. When the church gathers to worship and pray, the Holy Spirit still speaks and says, set that one aside for me, set that one aside for me, and send them to a particular place. From God's perspective, the Holy Spirit is in total control of the missions movement. But from the church's perspective, From the what should we do kind of question, global missions begins when we worship and pray and seek the face of our Father. The first step in missions is a step into the throne room of God. The only way that this can work with true effect and lasting effect is for us to seek our Father. As we gather together to seek our Father, someday he will say even in this congregation i want you to set aside that one and that one and i want you to send them to a particular place he will do it he's already done it in the life of the church the spirit still chooses and sends as the church gathers to worship and pray and it's not that prayer is magic right it's not that if we will gather and pray if we will do x that god will always do y this is not just a matter of a simple system of missions This is about a relationship, beloved. This is about a father who's calling his children, come together into my presence. Come seek me. Come listen to me. Come learn from me. Come receive from me. Come hear my specific will with regard to specific things. Come confess your sins to me. Come receive discipline from me. Receive forgiveness from me. Receive direction from me. Empowerment from me. And when I speak, then you go. Come and seek me until I speak, and when I speak, then you go. Beloved, the call to prayer is a call to relationship. That's what it's about. Our Father is saying, come together into my presence, and still I will choose. Still I will send. The Holy Spirit is in total control of the missions movement. But one of the primary means he uses to drive this movement along is the worshiping, praying church A prayerless church will be a fruitless church with local and global missions because this is the way the Spirit does things. Seek me and I will pour my power in you and through you. There's not an alternative to this that I can see in the scripture. And so just from a practical point of view as a church, what do we do about this? Well, I would just say now I've been, at, I've been calling us to prayer for the last four or five weeks. Now I want to focus it a little bit more this week and say let's be the best senders we can possibly be. There, there will certainly be some of us that will be sent to nations around the world here. But most of us will not be sent away. Most of us will be called to stay here and support. And the lion's share of our portion is prayer, beloved. The best thing we can do for our missionaries is to pray for them. Really to pray for them. And here at this point, I want to press us a little bit because I think there's, I'm not talking about this church in particular. I just think in the church at large, there's a little bit of dishonesty among us as Christians, in America at least. Often we will say, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm not pointing at those people out there. I'm pointing in my own heart. We will say, yeah, I'll pray for that. Or I prayed for them. And in truth, we never prayed for them. In truth, we thought about that person, we thought about God, and we called it prayer. But it wasn't prayer. Prayer happens When you take somebody into the presence of your Father and plead for them by name, plead for them specifically. And the beautiful thing about this is you don't have to go to some special cathedral. You can do this in your room. You can do this in your kitchen. You can do this in the car. You can do this while you're walking down the hall at work. Prayer is a matter of the heart. Because of what Jesus has done, we have access into the presence of the Father from anywhere. But to pray is really to pray is to lift up a person by name and plead for them until God hears and actually answers our prayers or until he shapes our hearts so that we pray better things that he's pleased to answer. To pray means really to pray. And I'm calling upon us, beloved. As a church, I'm calling upon us. Let's pray for our missionaries. Really pray for them. Actually pray for them doesn't have to be some big fancy thing sometimes prayer is just quiet it's just simple but prayer is speaking to our father in specific ways about specific things so i have in mind david and carmen gunderson who are missionaries to the somalis here in the twin cities i have in mind ethan and alicia larson who serve as missionaries based here but ethan goes around the world to train pastors extremely important ministry And in May and then in June, he's going to be going to Nepal and then he's going to be going to Uganda to train pastors. We need to be praying, not just for Ethan, but for this whole family. We need to be praying for them. I'm thinking of Amos and Meredith Anderson who are planting churches in Albania and their work is a worthy work. But I know from just talking to them and talking to their dad, Ben Anderson, that the work is a very heavy work too. And there are many times when they've just thought, you know what, we got to get on a plane and get out of here. It's hard. Beloved, we need to be praying for these people. I have in mind my friend Vijay Masala in central India who is training pastors and planting churches and helping the poor all over India. The the ministry is just really exploding in the healthiest way. But they need our prayers. They need us to pray. I'm thinking of Catherine Rivard, a young, brave woman in Papua, Papua, New Guinea, PNG. She's there with Wycliffe Bible Translators as part of a team. I'm thinking of Sarah Weber, a friend of our church, who's in the Southeast Asian, can't say more than that publicly, but faithfully serving Christ, and surely there are others in this congregation that we love, that we pray for, and what I'm saying here at the end of this message is let's really devote ourselves to prayer, beloved. Let's not just talk about it, let's do it. So, we got about five minutes here, and I wanna start the process. Here's the list, and let's just pray for these folks by name as God leads you. If you wanna pray out loud, that's fine. If you wanna just pray for them in your heart, that's fine too. But I want to be clear that this next five minutes is just the beginning of what I'm calling us to. I'm asking us to get more serious about praying for our missionaries day by day by day. I know many of you are very faithful to this. I don't mean to insult you at all. In fact, I'm inspired by you, and I really mean that. I'm just saying, let's take it up to the next level. Let's understand that the Spirit still chooses and sends as we gather to worship and pray. So let me begin. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you so much for the stories of what you did in the past. That really matters, Lord. It's inspiring. It's informative to see what you have done so that we can understand what you are doing now. And I pray, Father, that you would help us now in these moments to faithfully lift up our missionaries before you. Father, faithfully to pray for them, faithfully to love them in the presence of God. And I pray that these brief five minutes, Father, would be the beginning of a new level of intercession at GCF for our missionaries. And I pray, therefore, that it would be uh, the beginning of a new level of fruitfulness in local and global missions for the glory Of Christ. So thank you, Father, for what you'll do in these few minutes. Thank you for what you'll do in the coming weeks and months. Father, so many and so deep are the cries of our hearts for missionaries around the world, those few that are named above me here, and the many, many that are unnamed, but in the hearts of people in this church. Lord, the burden seems so great, but I praise God that you are greater still. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. His power is unfathomable. He could hold on his shoulders 10 billion worlds and all the missions problems contained in them. And so, Lord, we let the weight rest upon you and we simply devote ourselves to prayer, to pleading, to asking, to praying. Please teach us, Lord. Please draw us deeper and deeper still into the courts of the Lord where intercession is the highest joy. Teach us to be like Jesus Christ who ever lives to intercede. Teach us to be like the Holy Spirit who prays for us ceaselessly with, with, with intentions beyond words. Teach us, Lord, Teach us to know the joy, the power of constant intercession, especially for our missionaries, Lord. And I thank you with all my heart for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.